0: Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to the close up. This week, we're sharing two highlights from this year's Art of the Real Festival, which continues through May 6th. Co presented with Movie, the series offers a survey of the most vital and innovative voices in nonfiction and hybrid filmmaking. This year's opening night selection was John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection, Julian Ferroz's sophisticated and witty found footage ode to tennis legend John McEnroe. The director joined us after the screening for a Q&A. Another highlight was the New York premiere of Milford Graves' *Full Mantis*, co-directed by Jake McGinsky and Neil Young. The film is a radical portrait of experimental jazz icon Milford Graves, who has played with Albert Ayler, Giuseppe Logan, and Sonny Shamrock. Neil Young, Jake McGinsky, and Milford Graves all joined us for a Q&A after the screening. Let's go to that now. Followed by our Q and A from the opening night screening of John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection.
1: There's a, there's a step there too. Yeah. So, Melford. Uh, so you've seen the film a number of times now, uh, including with an audience. Um yes.
2: Uh within the, the audience? Oh, actually, no, you only once. In Rotterdam. That's the only one I saw. So the second time. Um what do you think of it? Oh I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's uh yeah. Uh it's pretty cool. It's got me thinking, you know, looking back. Yeah. Reminiscing. Yeah. Hello? Yeah, oh yeah. It's yeah. Better. It's better. Reminiscing. And uh I was thinking about when I uh it was an old story when I first met Jake, this young guy coming up to Bennington looking all hip. You know, my Bennington crew, you know, coming to my classroom all hip, you know, and so on. And uh but we uh we stuck it out together, you know. 19.
1: Yeah, so um you, Jake, you started working on this like a decade ago, you said, or even longer?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's had a, had different shapes at different times, but I think I started recording The Professor about 15 years ago, um, 2004 when I got up to Bennington. Pretty re- soon after that I asked if I could record some of the lessons. We were doing one-on-one lessons uh kind of late at night after the advanced percussion classes, and I'd record some of that and so I could listen to it back myself. Um, and uh, soon after that, started um, filming uh, on my own, and actually Marcus, who's here somewhere, Marcus DeMaio, who's the third camera person, um, came down to uh, to the professor's house and we started filming thinking of film thinking of an archive um helping out with projects as they emerged Mm -hmm. and uh over time that gained momentum and we started talking about projects films started talking about a feature-length film then had to deal with the pressure of saying that out loud and and reacting to that and uh probably maybe eight years ago a professor started showing me some of the archival stuff that's in the in the film, particularly the, the reel from the uh, School for Autism. And uh, soon after that, the project started shifting gears and turning into to what it ended up being. But um, yeah, the, the, for me, the, the, the process has been one of, of recording and listening, and things emerged out of the hard drives and out of the recordings. Um, from the lessons that were resonating and kind of asked to be put in places in the film, ultimately.
1: Um, I mean, w- one of the really remarkable things for me about this is the way that it's edited. And um, it, it's so sort of unusual in that it's like um, so many different kinds of transitions uh, that are really surprising that all really come together. and. Um, if you're working with so much different kinds of material and you know, your own and stuff that you're finding and stuff over such a long period of time, like what's the, what's the approach there? What's, you know, when did it become? Yeah, I imagine it was several different sort of projects or versions along the way. That
3: you could talk. Yeah, indeed. I mean, Neil and I edited together and we're both musicians. And for me, music's the main way I know how to make things. Um, so I think there was a sense of musicality um, early on, and uh, I think, you know, the I think for both of us, uh, kind of trying to make the film dance with the professor's energy in ways, and the, the sense of surprise that can happen when, um, you know, you, you see the musculature of drumming but hear the sound of a cymbal droning. Um, when you see uh, the professor dancing to applause that happened in, in the 70s is kind of the things that cinema can do that nothing else really can do quite like that, those kinds of juxtapositions. So I think there was a sense of musicality, a sense of, of joy and, and playfulness and trying to find um, find that in every transition. Um, speaking just for myself, I, I'm also a DJ and, Actually, a lot of the early, and some of my friends here, you know, have experienced mixtapes that I kind of made for myself that had the music and the voice interacting, and I, I think I tried to retain that sense of of um, of transition that comes from DJing. But I, I would also say that like the, the the lesson in the the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system was a big one for for both Neil and I in, in a, as a kind of um, instruction for how cinema can work. So if there were scenes that you could feel your sympathetic nervous system and your body sensation uh, respond with a, a tightness and we would be looking for ways to, um, to get the parasympathetic uh, nervous system and, and go back and forth. And that's, that's a deep and, and, and one of the first lessons I learned from, from the professor regarding musicality and performance and, and kind of playing with body sensation and the nervous system. Um, I think you can, you can really examine the film through that lens and, uh, and find a lot.
4: As well, I mean, as, as well as like the, the dualities, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of two, two shots or, or doublings. Um, the professor's head, the, the um, kind of off on off, thing that's happening that I think is like uh, I'm losing my train but, but basically yeah th- th- that sense of like uh, surprise that happens from these things going back and forth.
1: And how <laughs> did you come into it? Neil?
4: Oh, I, I came into it about three years ago. Um, Jake and I have been playing music together uh, sharing a lot of bills. Um, yeah I guess we'd known each other for many years before that and Jake had been telling me about this project and, and invited me along. Um, when, he was, when I was transferring some footage for, from him, for him, and then uh, yeah, that Brandeis show, I, I came along and shot, and uh, the, the footage seemed to seem to sing, so it was it was cool. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, then, and then for us, it was just a, a, a dialogue and editing.
1: And you just, you've been a willing participant along, all along the way for, just, you've been willing to be shot and, and you know, share your teachings, just let, letting, letting
2: these guys, put <laughs> the, the cameras on them and tell them to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, know, are there ever, I, go ahead. I, I told Jake, I don't want to, I don't want to tell these guys what to do or how to do it. I just want to be surprised, uh-huh. you know, yeah. sometimes, you know, you, you know, as an artist, you, start to tell other people you know i want this shot i like this shot i said this time i'm just going to let it i'm not going i don't want to get involved i'll just do yeah. i'll just do it and they'll capture what i'll be doing yeah and uh like could sort of be surprised to me uh, uh, uh as well you see uh those lessons that we had and uh, i see several of my bennington students in here uh and that uh the, the gentleman came up to me and said i was a student of yours in 91 and I didn't want to say nothing to you then. That was earlier today. I looked at this guy and say, ninety-one, I'm trying to figure this guy out. Who is this guy? And I said, Well, that's great. You know, get somebody from ninety-one. And I see a whole bunch of people. I see John Blum over here smiling at me. Came back in his master studies. We had a one-on-one and told him, I want you to play some montoonist, man. And John wanna tear the keyboard up. I said, We wanna play some ontoonism. So, you know, I purposely put people through a different kind of um, mindset. And then I would get like um, uh, feedback and, this, and, this, and the student evaluation forms at the end of the term. And one of the greatest things they would always say, well, we talk too much. Mm. So I'm saying, what are you gonna play on your instrument? A lot of theory? I said, you gotta have the story. So what Jake is saying, the story we had, was like a story behind it. You know? So if you don't have no story behind what you're doing, what's the purpose? Getting them doing a lot of mechanical exercises and you know following some rules that's been around for the longest that you have no understanding of why you're doing it, but you're doing it because you want to socialize, you know? And so, uh, so when he said, like, we had one-on-ones, it was, it was big one-on-ones. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I would actively participate. And I, I see uh, uh, one of my favorite vocalists here, Lisa Sokolov, that was one of my students, and I've always told her she was a special kind of voice. Uh, because I used to sing, uh, make certain sounds, and I would say, well, where do you hear it at? And she would always pinpoint it. And I said, you don't teach that, you know? So uh, I'm saying it's great to see some of you here, uh, you know, from back in the days. So um, I understand what you're talking about, you know? It's like the relationship we have had is that what we have been through is like feeling them out and not just doing some assignment. Mm -hmm. You know, someone comes out, they have this assignment, and they don't even feel the subject. You know, And that's, that's the worst way you can do it. So I look at this here with a, a, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, d- d- the feeling part. And, um, I mean, they did a the job because we have some material. You guys have got some material to pick from all of this. You know, there's so much more to go, you know.
4: I would say a lot more films could be made.
2: Oh, yeah, a, a lot bunch more. of stuff. It I'm it seeing it that. It I said, oh, wow, it. some real dynamic <laughs> stuff, you know. And he didn't. He didn't see that. They didn't really see the archives we have. We we have, we have that we were the official MMA UFC guys. And you crazy man, you know, doing that stuff. But uh, you know, it was it was bang them up, bang them up. And you know, the great thing is, um, uh, this is the first time. This is the first time that, uh, in my performance, and it's amazing, because I said. Well, you know, one day, maybe I'll be doing something in the Lincoln Center area, and my family will be here. So uh, uh, with my three grandchildren and my wife and my other five children, please stand up. You know? (laughs) So, you know, my, my... my, my kids, I, you know how people say, your, your children say, I'm no kid, but you know how parents are. My kids are still here, <laughs> you know? And one of the things I want to say real quick is um, uh, uh, my Yara guys, uh, you know, uh, 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 window came to me, uh, window was what, about 20 years old? Hector, uh, Lester came to me, 17, Lou, I forgot your age, but Lewis, Lewis and the guy in there, we, we are uh, smacking each other on the chest. So with my Yara guys step up, even Damani, who came later, and the guys. You got, guys, just step up. You know, that's, that, that's uh, still hanging here, you know. Where's Hector? I don't see, do I see Hector? So uh, I'm finished. <laughs>
1: I um I have more questions for you though. Oh yeah, huh? <laughs> okay. Um I wanted I wanted to ask about your like that impulse. I know you you collect all kinds of things and required all kinds of things, but this right. um this archive of of video footage that you have in particular, what was that What's that impulse and what it, you know what in particular have you been, you know, have you been intending to collect and
2: keeping it and why? Well, what made me do that is because in the 1960s we were not really archiving things with, with cameras. We wasn't audio recording or nothing. And I said, wow, that was an error. Because all we can do is talk about what we used to do in the 60s. And we have probably very little footage or any audio material and any of that. And that said, I said, I will never make that error again. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm gonna archive this stuff. Because, especially for like the younger people, you know, and being in, you know, being in education, academia for such a long time, I wanted to really show people what took place in the 60s, especially from the, uh, the music community. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to explain this stuff, and they said, wow, if only we had somebody archiving stuff and some of the things that took place and just just uh, rehearsals. Uh, like, we, we don't have that. We got, we got photographs. And, so, and, and in my martial arts thing, that was always not, we would sit down and we would look at things and we would analyze what we were doing. Everybody can see their things. The problem is I have so many doggone tapes home that it's the thing now is is transferring this stuff, (laughs) you know. Uh, So uh, it was basically because of what happened in the '60s, and then when you come into the the, the '90s or uh, you know, and and the 2000 era, and people say, "Well, do you have any uh, audio or any any AV material in that?" You say, "No," so I said, "No, that's it." So. uh,
1: did this project help to start that, you know, digitizing and transferring and stuff process? Are you doing that? Or, or, or are you guys starting
3: to?
1: Well, <laughs> these that, guys are starting to do Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, That's I had right. a pack of not, photos. Not, not you, yeah.
2: but yeah. yeah I, I digitize whatever, whatever he, he, t-
3: whatever he yeah. tells me to digitize. Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: yeah I, just, <laughs> I just give him envelopes and stuff, and this guy's an archived all the stuff. Now it's, the, the, you know, getting some of the, the, the audio stuff. Um, and, uh, I mean, I have audio stuff. I used to sit down, and, and uh, I would just uh, put on the reel-to-reel. And th- those things I cherish, you guys haven't heard, when I was in the 60s, getting techniques and stuff together. You know, uh, That's more important than people say, well, why don't you write a book? I said, no, you need to listen to it. I'm not going to try to notate stuff. Listen to it, because that way you'll hear it. But that stuff, I got piles of stuff mm-hmm. that's uh, unbelievable. I'm going to st- open it up. Thank you so much
1: yeah. for your insight and your wisdom. Um, you must have been a great math student, counting all the time. I'm really impressed. Like When you were learning drumming, did you? how did you hear the rhythm? Did you start just doing four, four beats? And, and how do you open it up to be able to count and then embellish on all of that counting? I'm really impressed by that.
2: Well, I'll tell you this. I wish I had some of my friends here that grew up with in the 70s and 80s and 90s now, and I was always an oddball character, you know. And people would say, "Well, how did you how did you do that? How did you do this?" And I would really uh, sometimes I'd be talking nothing, you know. I'd be trying to make up some kind of theory about what happened, and I said, "I don't know. I just do it, really, you know." And sometimes you just do the thing. And what I had to do is try to get more intellectual to figure out what was happening. And, and then I found out the best way, which we did with Jake, we'd sit down, maybe you have a congo, I have a congo, you know, and we play and play. And I said, okay, now you gotta get the feeling like this here. And I would play a feeling and I'd say, play off of me, you play off of me. And I said, I'm gonna give it to you, I'm gonna give you something to try to stimulate you and inspire you to say, well, you can do it, you can do it. And um, uh, f- for example, this is, this is, this is real quick. When I was uh, uh, working one time, well, I was actually going to a school called, uh, it was a, it was a, a technician school, uh, and he called it Eastern Technical School. And it was a one-year course because I didn't want to go back to any kind of four-year school because my intentions was in the late 60s was to uh, uh, study medical laboratory technology, pack my bags, move to Africa, and just drum and do some field work in, in, in a medical area. So, anyway, I'm in this. Um, I, I, I was like above the average student. I was like 32 years old at the time. So, anyway, uh, the, the two teachers was trying to uh, uh, figure out how to change one measuring unit for this particular laboratory test into another unit. And they were out, down, there, down there writing all these equations. And they couldn't get it. They couldn't say, well, we're stuck here. We don't know how to do this here because they don't talk about uh, making this kind of change. And then when they left out, I said, well, so what the hell are they, what's the problem? And it was, if, if anybody came in see it was a thing called titration, where it was trying to get from one pH to another pH. So instead of trying to write the equations, it was a waste of time. <laughs> I had one particular tube putting down acid drops, one alkaline, and I said, and the music, one drop, two drops, three drops, four drops. Then I counted the other one, I said, well, this drop, add that drop. And I figured it out. And next day they said, how did you figure that out? <laughs> I said, I just start counting drops. You guys got all these fancy equations. I said it was simple, you, you know? So, um, uh, you, know, you know, maybe part two on that. Maybe next year I'll be able to tell you, give you more information on how this is all figured. I do this on calculus and I do this on calculus and everybody, you know? Anybody, a calculus specialist here? I don't think too many people <laughs> going to raise their hands because y'all don't know what I'm going to say. Huh? <laughs> so y'all gonna, y'all going to lay out. But when I do like with calculus, people do calculus. So I said, oh, so you mean to tell me you can calculate an object moving through space, maybe some parabolic motion, uh, and you can tell me at what time in space that that thing, where it will be and so on, so on, so on. Oh, yes, I can do that here. You know, I work for the military and so on, so on, so on. I said, I'll tell you what, you see this fist? <laughs> I'm going to take this fist and I'm going to throw this fist and if you don't intercept that fist you're going to get knocked out <laughs> if you know calculus you should be able to predict it <laughs> but it ain't a machine it's not going to go like bam it may go bam, wop, but it may bop, bop, bam. you see so I said you don't know mathematics <laughs> you know you really don't know biological mathematics you may know physical machine mathematics but you don't know soul mathematics Yes.
5: Um, You were talking at one point about investigating uh, polymetrics. And I'm curious if you could help me differentiate between uh, metric
2: modulation
5: and humiola and polyrhythms. And if you see all of that in relation to yourself and related to Tony Williams or other drummers.
2: Okay, let me say this to you. First of all, if you looked at that if you looked at my face and look at my face now, you see that was a little while ago. Yeah. I was a little younger when I made that statement. <laughs> so I don't talk about I do polyrhythm no more. I do what I call polycharacter. It doesn't even talk about the, 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 the metric thing no more. I, I, I basically, uh, you know, um, uh, that is a uh, a, a kind of a Western approach uh, to, to measurement. You know, when early musicologists, especially the English guys, uh, went into Africa and they tried to figure out what some of those d- uh, drummers was doing in the rhythm, uh, they approached it from a, a very mechanical type of sense. And they wanted everything charted out, everything very linear. And they had a, they had a problem because it was never it was done like that. So that's what we are... We are we we don't really understand. Um, uh, so it's not, it's not so much about the the, the, the polyrhythm no more, even about the the, uh, the, the poly Even I was counting. You know, that was my that was my younger days. I was influenced. 1973. That's a little while ago. So I was counting. You know, I was you know going through the the whole procedure of you know like being part of the club, so to speak that time, I had been studying tabla. I was influenced by the whole uh, uh, Hindu system. And so I went through my bag on that. But then I said at the point. I said, it's not even really about that. You know, everybody, we all have our own particular rhythm. But you got to believe it. You got to make it fit in. You see. And so far as we've been, we've been really taken out of how to really, you know, uh, 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 play rhythm. And so I'm in this transition right now. That uh, it's difficult to hear, and if the drummer's in here, it's not that I'm putting you down, but for me personally, it's very hard to hear somebody that's pop, 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 There's always on the only thing, on chop, chop, chop. It's, it's hard to hear that, or somebody that says a one, a two, a one, two, three, four. That drives me nuts. <laughs> you know, one and two and one, he had a two, he had a one and a two, and that has nothing to do with anything. You see. Uh, but it's it's just a matter of uh, telling people it's okay if you believe in it, because the, the, the people the people who were really hip. And we didn't show that that was only f- that was a short tape the autistic kids, mm-hmm. because you can only get about fourteen minutes on that particular tape. But there's a part on there when about five of those kids was on there, and they took over. Mm-hmm. I got. I, I got up and got my talking drum. And the kid that was on my sitting down was seated. I took the talking drum it was in the back of his head. And I was pumping them And they were dealing. Those kids was dealing. And you talking about it wasn't no one. It wasn't no one. You couldn't count that thing. But you know what? You felt them. And you watch them the power. And the children are hip. You put children around in music and let them go, they really show you how we're supposed to do this stuff. They be feeling it, and it will come along. No, no, I'm going to give you some music lessons. You have to learn how to count. You're off beat there. You're singing out of tune. I think we're, 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 that's a screw up for me. You know. So I don't want to uh, you know, stop you from going to your conservatory classes or doing your whole number. I said, but I'm always ahead of my time anyway. I'm always ahead of my time. That's been my whole
1: thing. I'm going to repeat the question. Uh, do you think there's a difference between a musician and an artist?
2: Oh no! Oh no! Uh, I was just discussing with Jake or something, and I, it has to become official. Uh, but there's something I was asked to do. I was approached by some people uh, just at this last minute, and they contacted me to do something. And I, I said, "Hmm, this is very interesting, because I guess it's one of these very private, private sets, and it's like for painters and sculptures and so on." I said, hmm, maybe they want me to put some sculpture in here and something. What are they calling me for? So the, 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 the guy who's a painter, I found out today that he is one of the big, big guys right now. He says, you know, I've been a fan of yours, and I want you to play for my opening. I said, wow, very interesting. Because he wants the music to be able to introduce the sculpture, <laughs> the painter, and someone else. I said, that's very interesting, because they're not distinguishing you know, between that, because I've been told before that they said, wow, by poets, they said, man, you, you, you know, the way you play is like poetry. You know, if, if, if my technique may be like I'm on the canvas, you know, doing something like this here, and the way I man- manipulate, that could be like doing sculpture work. No, I, don't, I don't really see, really, no uh, a difference in that, you know, because the, the, the major thing for me is coming back to something very basic. You gotta feel it. You know, and that's what the artist is. You've got to feel it.
0: I feel like everyone on the instrument that I play, and just in general, the program kind of plays in the same
6: style. Everything kind of is starting to sound the same to me. And then when I play, I kind of hear myself and feel myself playing in that way. And I really hate that. I I feel like I'm not playing the way I want to be playing.
2: Uh, what school do you go to? Uh-oh. Okay, so, I mean, you know, hey. Uh, oh, boy. I'm glad my mom and daddy didn't say, you know what, we're going to give you some music lessons at five years old. I was on my own. The feel that I came, I was really in, in love with the instrument. And I think it's just... It's, it's, you know, the older guys always talk about some of the younger guys that they all sound like machines, man. You know, they're too calculated and everybody's sounding the same old thing here. And if they're taking that inner something out, everybody's, a lot of people I know, they're so busy looking outward, you know? And if, you, if you're a composer, you have to understand uh, this is, goes more deeper than this here. But uh, to, to be able to, uh, if, in other words, if I want you to play a piece of music. And this way now, and I didn't come up this way. And somebody said, OK, I got this tune. They give you a, a sheet of paper, manuscript, and they got it all notated out. And you play this game about reading a note. And then you'd be reading these notes, and you do that, and, and, and come over and say, well, that's not the way I want it. I was in a group with a famous bass player one time, a very famous bass player. And he wanted to be a composer. And we are in this rehearsal about 15 years ago. And he's telling the string players, well, that is, uh, you're not playing my chart right. You're playing the the notes are wrong. They said, well, we're playing what you have written here. And they said, well, will you please play what you want us to play, that you have written. And when they played what was on paper, about four-string players says, wow, it's written wrong. (laughs) Right from the get-go, he should have played on the instrument what he wanted. We used to come out and sing something. And don't try to dictate everything you want the other person to do. You should inspire the other person as a conversation. For me, that's like me uh, coming to you and saying, I want to have a conversation with you. Now, when I say uh, uh, it's red, uh, I want you to say it's blue. <laughs> you know, I'm not dictating the conversation in the language I want you. It's a conversation we have. So why the hell are we doing that in music? Why are we doing that? Causing you to vibrate the way I vibrate. Something about that is wrong to me. Something about that is wrong. I'm talking about now is about time that we start to cultivate people. You know, we all have to be involved in here. So I feel like everybody has to get in tune with themselves and get in that vibration. And, of course, everybody, all of us got some power. It's unbelievable. That it's so shut down in us, we don't even realize that. All we need is someone to say, You have something to offer. You have something to offer. So let's work on it. I want to hear what you have to say. So uh, basically, I feel for you. <laughs> that's all I can say. I feel for you.
0: I was lucky to visit
2: you at your house a, a couple of years back. And when we were there, you were telling us uh, that's right. In terms of your heart recording. <laughs> right. And I just thought I'd bring up something that doesn't get fully explained in the film. It would be maybe interesting for people to hear you talk about. But you were telling us how your research into heart rhythms was being used by doctors in Italy and other right. places. And I wondered if you could tell us where that's been going and, and how that's been helping heal people and other things. Well, I can do that very shortly. I, actually, I've been... Uh, Talking when I talked with my associate over there, Colin Ventura, about uh, two days ago, because I want to get updated. And so, what they're in a a deeper aspect of research, and which I'm listening to him, he's saying that uh, no one on the planet is doing what we're doing. You know, I contribute like frequencies from the heart, and that's what they asked me to do. I give them some frequencies that can stimulate stem cells. Because when I first started with them four years ago, I thought that the The technology they was using, uh, with uh, gigahertz and uh, and so on, so on, so on, and um, uh, I said, I don't think that's the way to to go. I think we need a biological source. So that's how they contact me. So what these what these guys do, they use so-called non-embryonic stem cells. Over here, when you talk about stem cells, people get uptight. You know, they're not taking them from embryos. So what happens? What's what's happening is, is. and there's different ways that you can stimulate these stem cells. They're looking for a regenerative process. I am part of maybe one other organization, and a new cyber security organization that's going to protect all these, these findings that they've found. But they're, what they're trying to do over there, and, and I don't know about here in the USA, but I know over in Italy and specifically Bologna at the University of Bologna and private research laboratories, and the, what, they, what they have found out, or what, they're, they're saying that, the, the initial uh, vibratory response that the stem cells took on, that they got from these uh, heart, this, this particular heart melody that I gave them from an actual real living heart that was in a crisis, that was going through an adaptive process, that gave out some positive frequencies to be able to survive, that has initiated stem cells to start to vibrate on their own reaction to this melody. So now they're down into the, the ultra, ultra molecular protein level, which is some deep stuff. So what we're talking about now, it's, it's still in trial, but it looks pretty promising. Uh, and so uh, that's basically what's happening. Okay. Yeah. Hey, um, I've always really liked the way that you incorporate your voice in your performance. Oh. Well, um, you specifically
3: mentioned, um, learning the tabla, and I know there's like a thing in, t- I guess in some of those like, ways of learning that particular discipline, there's a lot of, there, there's like a tradition of counting, like, syllables mm-hmm. in order to, like, learn the parts or whatever, and I was wondering if, like, I, certainly that, um, the armory show, there were a couple of pieces that you started by like singing the rhythms and then sort of like right. sending them out to your limbs. I mean, it was, you know, it seemed like it was really coming from an internal place. And I was just wondering if that kind of like incorporation of your voice into, as kind of like a motor for whatever else you're doing, whether that was something that
2: you've just always been doing or was there a particular like discipline that sort of like opened that up for you or Oh, I was I was I was doing it when we, were, when we were young, cause we like I said we didn't write rhythms down, but we were singing. We were singing, the, uh, especially the rhythm parts. We would get together, like I would I would walk on somebody, somebody going. We would sing stuff like that then We'd, Started getting the movement, but then I started really studying phonetics and and so on, and so on. I said, "Wow, this is pretty neat," you see. And then listening to some of the bata singers, except uh, uh, particularly Lazaro, the great bata singer out of, out of Cuba, and how he would he would sing, and where he would be singing sometimes in the bata. You see, if they if they if they're playing to a point when it, and it starts to taking up, they start to taking it up. He has to come up with that contrast. They bring you down. They do the same thing in in, in, in Haiti too with with the voice. They're very smart on that. Now, they may not be conscious. They may not have a scientific understanding of what they're doing. But what what Lazaro and those guys are doing, they're in that throat and they're stimulating that so called gag reflex. Like you want to go like, eh, throw up, like, eh, like, eh. So they say, Abalope, Abalope, not Ovalupe. I've heard that. That's too commercial. You see? It's down in here. See, like it there. And that stimulates that from a scientific point. It gets to that medulla. They've studied that with the Haitian, And that is like the sit that would cool you down. When you're up like that, there, you've got to be something to cool you down. You see? So you have to know for yourself, you know, your whole, your whole energy process. When you feel like you're exerting a lot of energy. You have, to, you, have, you have to know how to make some physiological changes in your body to cool yourself down. One of the things in so-called free jazz or avant-garde, when especially the horn players would start, start screaming, you know, they'd be on top of it, and people say, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it. They didn't understand how they were overtaxing, you know, the sympathetic nervous system with all that adrenaline, and they'd be like, just here, like this here, you see. They didn't know how to do that yet. <laughs> they didn't have to make that change like that there. But you have to know that. You, know, you got to feel that. You have to know. And you got to know, you know, that's the thing of being a healer or, or dealing with the medicine and physiology. Because the body does have, do have certain numbers. But the numbers, are, they, don't, they don't follow like this here. They have, like whenever you have a blood test, they always give you a range of what normal should be. Well, that's what's happening. It's constantly going like that there. It's not all charted out, very linear, and like a teasing graph kind of concept. It doesn't do like that. It's always on a curve, you know, but it's got to stay within a certain boundary, you see. So you have to know that boundary. So that thing is going, the old days, you know, medicine and music was together. Now they got, it's trying to come back together now. But so when you go, if you want to Manhattan, you should be taking a course in how sound really affects the physiological system. And and, and what you need to study is a course in acoustics to understand why you're doing what you're doing. See, a lot of times I'm always saying, and I'm sorry for conservative people, conservatory people if you're directors, but I tell people, you know, if you really want to learn how to play out of of rhythm, out of tune, go to the conservatory. (laughs) They may not like what I'm saying, but you check yourself out. I'm not saying close the conservatory down, but you got to make some changes. I know I'm gonna get in a lot of trouble. I love you you dearly. After 39 years, I appreciate you and the family. Who's that back there? This this is is your your praying mantis too.
4: Hector, Hector.
2: So I want to say this, you made a good point parasympathetic, sympathetic memory system, movement. If all musicians would just study movement, they'll get the understanding of what frequency is because the world moves in the frequency. Without understanding movement, you can't be a composite of the universal force. And without that universal force, which is movement, you won't understand. The if I saw Latino, and you won't understand movement. I love you, dearly, beloved. Okay, well, that, that Hector... Don't you go no place. I don't know if you walk away that like you disappear. <laughs> now, now, Hector, my students brought Hector to me years ago. They said they went to the tournament. They said they saw this guy, man. 1979. 1979. They said they saw this guy in this tournament that we need to have here. So Hector came on over to the house, and, and I hope you remember, this Hector, when I was told you and I told Wendell, stay out them dog on tournaments. Because Hector be throwing people all around them damn tournaments. I mean, nobody to mess with no Hector. He was with Alan Lee doing Chinese Kung Fu. You know? I seen a guy come past there, uh, Kafra doing uh, Egyptian Tai Chi. He made up that name. (laughs) You know, he was in Full Lotus. He came down there, and he wanted to sit down and do some Chi, sit down in Full Lotus, and try to do some push hands. (laughs) Hector didn't do no push hands. Hector picked that guy by his elbows and took him through. (laughs) He said, wow, that guy is strong, man. <laughs> she don't come out here playing them kind of games. Uh, but that's Hector. But the beautiful thing about Hector, after so many years, we have reconnected. Because I told him, I said, hey, man, it's time to reconnect and bring all you guys back together. Because everybody's in their either 50s or, or, or 60s. And uh, I ain't going to tell, say, Hugh's age. But, but Hugh is older than me. You know, Hugh Glover was the saxophone players. And, I don't know. And, and Joe Rigby, I think he's sitting back up there. You know, it's good to have these guys here. He came out from Philly here. And uh, so whenever you, whenever you hear me tell that story about Joe Rigby, about Joe Rigby, the guy who took me to uh, Copa City to hear Coltrane. And he was talking about Coltrane. I didn't know who the hell Coltrane was. What was that about, 1962, Joe? Yeah. 1962. He said, we're going over here to hear this guy. And he was a top saxophone player. I said, okay. And then we sat close to the stage. And then when Elvin was on drums, he said, that's the top drummer. And I listened and played my favorite things. I said, well, he's a top drummer? <laughs> I said, hmm. I said, you can do that? Because Elvin was a little bit on my loose. I went and borrowed Eric Brown's drums, my guy in the projects. I said, Eric, can I borrow your drum for three days, three weeks? He said, can I get my drums back? I said, yeah, I'll get them back. I said, man, I'm going to play me some traps right now. Because if you can play like that little Elvin, but I heard things be coming out the whole... African rhythm thing in the whole diaspora, I heard things that he wasn't doing, you know, in meters of, of, of three. I said, man, I hear all these other kind of rhythms going on. And so Joe was the guy who really introduced me, uh, one of the guys to make that change. But we knew each other from the decennials from high school. You know? 17, we were. That's right. We had our little social club. And so, so Joe is one of the main guys who made me look at another kind of way of saying, like, like looking at jazz. Because I was I was gonna do my my old Afro-Cuban, afro cuban afro and that's all I wanted to do. Because there was more drumming stuff going on. I didn't want jazz guys wasn't turning me on. They was too hip. The little brushes, man, and you know, <laughs> little office with the left hand and the snare. I said, man, ain't nothing going on. Come on, hit them skins. So when I did finally come out to hit the skins, they told me about nope for Graves, you gotta check him out. He's just avant-garde drummer. When I first read some critics said I was avant-garde, Man, I went to the dictionary and said, What the hell is avant garde? (laughs) I said, So that's what I am, avant garde? (laughs) So people say, What do you do? I said, I play avant garde, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'll follow orders. I didn't know what the hell no avant garde was. (laughs) So so anyway, uh, what time is it, 1 (laughs) o'clock?
1: We we should probably.
2: Yeah, because my driver said to call him at 11 o'clock. I hope he's still (laughs) out there.
1: I think we got you. I guess we should probably wrap it up. Uh, I, I have a question for kind of all of you. Um, you this this film isn't you know it's not just like you only worked on this film. You've, you've you've had this like long relationship together, um, and so I'm imagining that y- you know you'll keep going in various ways. So is there a specific project you're you're working on, or it's just continuing to hang out or?
3: Uh, definitely yeah. continue to hang out and. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of projects going on all the time, so.
2: <laughs> I'm, so I'm sorry. I, I don't. I don't want to be uh, interrupted, but uh, 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 Kim, don't you drive out here? Cause you may have to drive me home.
1: No, we got. You. That's drive.
2: <laughs> oh, okay, Tyler, you tell that guy I'll be out there. 11:29. You said 11 o'clock. I ain't taking no subway home.
1: No, we got you. I'm sorry.
2: I'm sorry. No, it's okay.
1: It's good. Um. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody.
6: And we have Alan Socek to help with translation. So we don't have a lot of time, so I'm I'm probably just going to ask a couple of questions and then I'll open it up to the audience. But um, I thought I would just start by maybe you could tell people a little bit about your... um, your job. You're an archivist, and that is how this film came about. Um, so I guess a two-part question. <laughs> I'm curious how this particular film came about in the course of your work, um, and also how you see this film in relation to in relation to the genre of the archive film, um, because I think you know it's it's a pretty established um, type of film. But often when you see an archival film, I feel like it's it's often the images are used to illustrate something, or they're used as in, to to help make advance the argument of the film, um, which doesn't seem to be the case with, with this film. Je travaille pour l'Institut National du
4: Sport, qui est une établissement public.
5: I work for the National Sports Institute, which is a government institute that comes under the Ministry of Sports, and I'm responsible for a very small cinematheque um, of archival films that are primarily technical many of them films of competitions from the 1940s through the 1980s so for evaluating the films and then trying to process them in a way so that they become intelligible which they're not in the form that they're in i as a viewer i'm oftentimes frustrated with those kind of archival films because um stock footage becomes so standardized that you see it everywhere and i really think that you need to take an approach that's much more has much more fantasy uh, involved in it, and really to revitalize it. Initially, when these kind of films are made, they start with a uh, basic idea. Um, so, for example, you might have a film where you want to uh, demonstrate male domination or um, immigrants, and so what happens then is that you're going to look for those kind of films that are going to illustrate the question you're looking at. And so when you're looking at archival films, sometimes you'll come across things that you didn't know were there. So for example, War in Spain, you may not have been expecting it, but when you come across the film, then you're going to look at it and try to think of how you're going to use those films. In my case, I had a very, very kind of new and particular relationship with the archive that I was working with, because normally what you see is, is um, the archives are used to support an idea, but here, it was really the archives themselves that provoked my ideas, that really generated my interest and each time I opened another, another reel, I had another idea and I worked on this film for three years and during that time, the editing process was very important because it was there that all of these different parts became interwoven and interrelated. And those very small reels that you see at the beginning, there's really no continuity in them. And when you look at them very often, you have no idea which competition it is that they're showing. So it really was something that I had to, had to look to very carefully. And I work on particular moments, and it was very important to look at the image in order to understand what was happening.
6: So um, I guess just to follow up, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about what you know, what those ideas, what what ideas did those images provoke in in, in you, and um, you know, at what point did this cache of footage, um, you know, these rushes of of McEnroe really become like a, this sort of essayistic film about sport and cinema and the relationship between tennis and cinema and, and you know that this you there's a lot of uh, kind of references and, and quotations in the film and, and, and Serge Danet seems to be like an important one and he's obviously somebody who wrote about that relationship but was that a pivotal thing for you I mean, when you were looking through the footage I'm, I'm curious about you know how the film took shape from that point. I was stunned.
5: Ah. <laughs> I think the shock for me uh, first was to discover John McEnroe in 16mm. And you have to understand that at this time period, which was the 1980s, most of these kinds of, of competitions were um, filmed in video. And so to find it on film, it really gave it a whole new prism with which to view what was happening, and a whole new way, which changed the way you look at what's
4: happening. At ce moment récit, j'ai su que je ne ferai pas un documentaire pour la télé.
5: And most of all, I didn't want to make a film that was going to be a film for television. I really wanted it to be a film that would be seen in a movie theater. And um, this, the texts, the Serge Deney texts, are actually fairly well known. I knew about them, but I really sort of plunged myself back into them. And I really wanted to learn, well, why did he write about them? Because he essentially became a reporter for Le Bresson about tennis. And this was the former editor of Cahiers de Cinema. And I discovered when I read his work that it really is something that's still very, very relevant. And he has a really a very correct way of analyzing what he was seeing. And you know, he's somebody who was considered an intellectual, and you know, very time oftentimes intellectuals have an attitude towards sports where they think, well, it's really cool, but they're not really into it all that much. But what I found as I read his work was that he really is very precise. And what he says is really very relevant. More so than some other professional sports journalists. And what also interested me about tennis is, tennis is a game that doesn't have a set time limit. It's not like basketball or soccer where you have a certain time that the players are on the field. In tennis, it's really the players who establish the time. So you can have a match that's 28 minutes or you can have something that goes on for 11 hours. And I think that this may have been actually what attracted Serge Dene to write about it, um, because it's really something that's a very profound thing. I I think in his case also, um, it was his mother who was very fond of tennis, and so there was an attraction there too. But I think he really went into it in a deep way and was able to make these connections with cinema and to merge the two. So
6: um, just one more question and then we'll take a couple from the audience. um you know, to, to your point about just how, how striking these images are, I mean, it's it's not just the fact that they're in 16 millimeter. I feel like these images are, it's a completely different visual language from television broadcast in terms of what the camera person is, is focusing on um, and I'm wondering about the challenge for you in terms of, I'm thinking especially of the final sequence in the film where you have to reconstruct um, a match from these, like, what I think of Pretty idiosyncratic, like kind of um, you know choices in terms of what, how that match was filmed. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about just putting that sequence together, where you have to recreate like a very well-known tennis match, which has been seen from a more conventional perspective.
5: Um, it's really important to remember that what you saw were rushes, and in most cases, the rushes are destroyed by the laboratory. And so, I in this case had access to something that was completely unknown. And when you have the rushes, you're able to see what came before and what came after, what entered the final the final film that you see. And what you have what you have here when you have the rushes is almost a making of, a consubstantial making of, where you not only see how the film was made, how the match, how the film, how the match was filmed, but then the match itself. I think what these films are is something that's very digressive. And I, I realized when I looked at them, that was, what was missing was really the dramaturgy that's present in tennis. And so what I basically had to do was to recreate the match from all of these small pieces of film, and I had to find which game, which point, which, which set they belonged to. I think there are two ways that you can look at a tennis match. You can buy a ticket, you can go to the stadium, and you can sit there and you can be there and watch it happen.
4: La deuxième façon, la plus partagée, la plus commune, c'est de regarder le match à la télévision.
5: The second is, and which est is, is more widespread is to watch the match on television. And since what I wanted to do was to bring people into a movie theater to watch tennis, I had to ask myself how do I do that? And so I decided what I really needed to do was to turn a disadvantage or a weakness into an advantage. And since there really wasn't continuity between a lot of these small pieces of film, I had to rely on something that's inherent in cinema, which is the ellipse. And as you mentioned, since this was a match that a lot of people remembered and and knew, um, what I thought was more important was to really kind of recreate it the way you might see it. If you saw glimpses, you would have memories of it, and to have those flashes of memory. And I decided since most people knew how it was going to end, I would show the end images first at the start. And just because you know how it's going to end, it doesn't mean that it can't be dramatic. And in this sense, I thought a lot about what Hitchcock would say, which is just because you know who the murderer is, it doesn't mean that you can't have suspense in trying to find out how the murderer came to be. A lot of times the score and the dramaturgy don't, uh, don't really match because I notice when I watch things on TV that they're really obsessed with numbers. You see the time, you see the score, and it, it's almost as if you were in a, in a tennis match, uh, in, in a soccer game, and you're watching and you think, well, this should have been one three to nothing, and in fact, you two, two to nothing. And I think it's important in tennis, it's something that's played point by point. And when <coughs> you see these, these really professional tennis players um, these are people who are never looking to the past, they're not looking to the next moment, they're really playing in the moment, point by point. And also I worked with some original music so that it worked very closely with the dramaturgy and it creates a kind of tension as you get closer to the end. And what you're going to see is, imagine it's taking place over a course of an hour, but the way it's structured and with the music, the way it's, it's, it's incorporated, it really allows you to see different aspects of him that perhaps you didn't see before.
6: You know, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we do actually have a reception um, in the Furman Gallery. And uh, I would actually maybe invite, if you don't mind, if people can just ask you questions in, in the reception, but I really want to um, encourage you to stay for the next film um, and also encourage you to speak to Julian from outside. Thank you so much for being here and for
0: having us coming The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you.